Would you guys welcome Chris? Let's give him a hand. This is Chris Meenan. He's here with his wife, Meryl. Meryl's up here. Would you just wave, Meryl? Thank you for being here. And his son, Tion, who is in the youth group, I think. So Tion's here as well. Chris uh, is a dear friend of mine, a mentor. And Meryl and him have been a part of Alex and I, our lives, for the last four years. Five, no, more than that, like six years. Wow. Chris has been the guy that when I was uh, toiling over stress in teaching with 15 people at our church. He was the guy I would call to calm down my panic attacks. Uh, he was the guy I called when I wanted to send in my resignation. Because <laughs> sometimes you get overwhelmed by life. Um, he's the guy that's been a part of my life, a huge influence in, in just planting churches. What he does now is he's been in ministry, him and Merrill, for 30 years. They've led two different churches, one in South Africa, one in Brea. Both handed over, both have done exceptionally well in his absence, which says a lot about his leadership. All that to say, uh, what he does now is travel around the world, meeting with churches like us, larger churches, smaller churches, all over the world, just encouraging, blessing, equipping, and, um, and just discipling leaders. So this is Chris, and he's got a word for us this morning. Thank you for being here. Absolute joy. Thank you. I'm an ex-school teacher and rugby coach, so I can throw my voice if I need to. And an infantry officer, so uh, volume isn't needed, but enjoyed. <laughs> I was just listening to the announcements, both services, about the new building. Meryl and I have been in ministry 30 years. 1983, we planted our first church in South Africa. I was 24, Meryl was 21, I was a school teacher, she was a college, and the adventure began. And I want to tell you honestly, if I had time, I could easily stand up here for an hour or more and talk about both in our story as well as the churches we work with, God's sovereign and supernatural provision for these great projects. You know, the Bible says the just, us, those who are redeemed by Jesus, shall live... It's the, 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 the Greek verb is continuous present tense. Ongoingly, the just shall live by faith. One of the things, I love being a dad and I love being a grandpa. Now the interesting thing is my kids have never asked me how to tidy a garage, how to fix a car, how to trim the grass's edge. They've never asked me any of the things that sometimes our society deems valuable. But they love listening to the stories from 1976, December of that year, when I, as a long-haired, you know what the days were, guy, student, came to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you're real, come into my life. And they love hearing the stories of God's sovereign and supernatural provision. Now, if you've never been involved in raising money for a, a project or a building, this is one of the most exciting moments of your life. I was in London three weeks ago pre preaching in a church that we helped plant in, uh, 17 years ago. And uh, about three years ago, a young man who was leading it, he was about 31 years old, uh, said to me, Chris, I've got a place to show you. So we were in Kingston, downtown Kingston, if you know the place, southwestern part of London. He took me to a room above a pub, and it was an old theater, the Imperial Theater, that was, uh, had been standing in Kingston for 100 years. And it was, it was a poo parade. I mean, there were just pigeons everywhere. Every room was, was honestly, it was desolate, it was smelly, it was dirty. And I, sat there, I stood there with Ryan, and he said, Chris, do you mind if I share with you what I see? And uh, I said, absolutely. He walked me through each room, 
as we went through. It hadn't been used for ages. It was broken. It was torn. It was smelly. It was yuck. He said, Chris, in seven months' time, we will, we will have this from its Muslim owner. He said, we would have spent, I think it was something like three million pounds on its development. And I'm looking over his shoulder. I know I've been involved with that church from before it was planted. I sat with a couple in South Africa who were going to London to plant it. I've watched its evolution, preached there every year for 17 years. I know the 300 people who are in the church. I'm thinking, Ryan, you have got to buy it from a Muslim. You have to get the permits to put a church in above a pub across the road from a club which has 2,000 party revelers. You have to raise the money. You have to get it done, and you are asking me if in seven months' time I'm available to fly to do the opening. So I didn't say anything to him because I might not have helped in my unbelief. I said, I'll do it. Seven months later, I flew to London, and I opened the building because a 31-year-old kid, young guy, believed that God does extraordinary things with people who believe, who have mustard seed. A dear friend of mine is a multimillionaire in South Africa. The church we planted and handed over had to build. There was no more facility big enough to cope with their 3,000 people. I didn't need it when I was that big. The young guy, 28-year-old businessman who I handed over to, he led it to that size. They had to build. It was going to be 3 million. And this businessman friend of mine, to his embarrassment, said to me later, he said, when I heard the offering announcement, I turned to my wife, he's a multimillionaire businessman, self-made, with dyslexic, he has got also, I mean, just a self-made man, turned to his wife with his cynical business eye and said, I'm going to watch another church fundraising endeavor come to naught. The money was raised. The day the building was opened, he walked in and he said it was as if God hit him with a baseball bat. And God said to him, I told you I could do this with or without you. It was the widow's might. It was the six-year-old boy who put 45 bucks in. It was, it was someone's grocery money. It was the RV that someone sold. It was a vacation that they never went on. All of those things accrued together. It's almost like matching finance. God says, if you give this, I'll match it. All that I'm wanting you to do is exercise some faith. And that building now... From that community, over 100 churches have been planted. All over the world, people have been ministered to. People have been touched. Lives have been changed. The same is true in London, etc., etc., etc. You have a remarkable opportunity to be in one of two spaces. To be the one who contributes, your, whatever that might be to you. Or it may be that you watch and miss out, and I'm not being manipulative or funny, honestly, you miss out on a great and glorious opportunity to contribute to a great adventure, kingdom faith adventure in downtown Long Beach. Meryl and I landed on these shores 16 years ago with 60 grand in our pocket. I was 38 years old. That's all we owned. 60 grand. When you have to buy a house, buy a car, buy a fridge, buy a toaster, buy every and anything you own, you know you don't land with lots of money. And I say this as, a, as glory to God, Meryl and I have given in excess of $100,000 in the 16 years we've been here to building projects. See, you can experience God's generosity or not. 
you can enjoy an incredible ride with God or not. He is kind. He is generous. He is lavish. And you will never tap into that until you put the key in the box and you open the box and see what God ravels, unravels to bless and abound you. That's an honest story. Some of you today, I believe, are getting a stirring of the gift of faith. It's in the Bible. It's where God asks of you to give exceedingly and abundantly, more than you thought, more than you can imagine. You're going to come back, and, and, and you and the missus are going to sit, if you're married or single, with one of your mates, going to say, I did not believe God would do what God did. When Meryl and I came into the ministry all those years ago, we were honestly as poor as church mice. We got married when Meryl was 18, I was 22. All our possessions fitted into one car. These are cool stories. The stories my kids want to hear. Because they're stories of God's supernatural provision. They can be yours. And Meryl and I looked at each other the day we made a decision to say yes to the call to plant a church. We looked at each other and I heard my mouth say this, Babe, we will never be rich, which we're not. But we'll do things that rich people do. And I can tell you, when we've been on a yacht off an exotic island in turquoise water and we've looked at each other and we've no, the moment was there. We'll never be rich. We'll just do things that rich people do. I can tell you about high-rise buildings in Hong Kong. We've, we've eaten in exotic restaurants when Meryl was given a Tag Heuer watch from two business people. We'll never be rich. We'll just do things that rich people do. Why? Because God wants to bless but the key to the door is when we take a step out of the boat of our own financial safety and sanity and we testingly put our foot on the water and we begin to walk and we watch and see what God will do. Now, I'm not supposed to be preaching on finances. I've been given another mandate. So this is free of charge. This is free of charge. Honestly, this is just such a remarkable opportunity. And you know why? I mean, Darren took me to look at the building just now. We just grabbed a cup of coffee. And I can't help it. I've just been doing this too long. But I can't help it seeing that stumbling, hurting, limping person who walks through those doors saying, is there any hope for me? And walks out a transformed person, then every one of your dollars matter. See, I should run for political office. Except I can't be. I don't have an accent like Schwarzenegger. I, 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 I don't have a body like his, so I've got no chance. Watch God do extraordinary things. Marinate yourself in the text. It's never about manipulation. Oh, come on, you give more or add another zero. None of that stuff. It's the pure sublime revelation that God is kind and God gives and God blesses. A funny story in all of this. I'm in London. My daughter's at Oxford University. I take her there. I'm on my way back to the airport we were led to believe that all her food was going to be provided for the year she studied C.S. Lewis. It didn't happen. I said to her, babe, no problem. God will provide. I'm driving back to the airport in my rented car. My phone rings. A pastor in London phones me. He says, Chris, I heard Dana's at Oxford. I said, yes, she is. He said, well, actually, as an eldership, we've just been praying, and we feel like we want to give her 300 pounds a month. I call her. I said, babe, you won't believe what happened since I left you on my way to Heathrow. This is what happened. We wept together. You see, you can never outgive God. You can never outgive God. Anyway, 
Before I came, I told you I've got lots of stories. I told you, I warned you. Ephesians, please. Now, you're in the middle of a study, and I'm so privileged to be invited in to this conversation. Thank you, Darren, the rest of the team. I feel a little bit like that kid on the night before Christmas. We have a tradition as a family that the night before Christmas, all the gifts are laid out, and each kid, although my ki- two of my kids are older now, uh, are adult, but when they were little, they could go to the tree and pick out one gift. It's tragic. Do they go for the big gift with a kind of geeky wrapping because Meryl and I were tired and we just kind of stuck it together? Do they go for the little exotic gift with a cool ribbon? Now, which is, which is gold? Is it the big one or the small one? And that's what I feel about this text. I have 30 minutes to take you through a month's worth of teaching to open up this nugget box, this treasure of truth. Open it up and see what God has. The story behind the story is simple. Paul... The author is a Jesus hater. I mean, he really did. I mean, this isn't kind of a, a, a cosmetic atheist which just suits their current lifestyle. Now, this is a Jesus hater. He was so angry with Jesus and the church that he actually went and got people imprisoned or executed. Now, you know you hate Jesus and the church when you do that. So, you can say to me, Chris, you know, I really have been uncertain about this Christian thing, and I don't know if God would accept me. My gift to you this morning is if God could take a Jesus-hater, church killer, I mean like blood, dead, grave killer, then he can cope with you. He writes to the church in Ephesus, a remarkable city, one of the captains, one of the capitals of the Roman world, a city of great commercial value, a very cool, exotic city, a city that was dominated by the temple of Diana, and she was worshipped for her beauty, very promiscuous. It sounds a little bit like the city that we're in. And Paul goes there and preaches this great gospel to them, and it catches flame. It gets into people's hearts, and they shake the city. In fact, they shake the city so badly that the businessmen chase Paul out of town. Now, all of that's important in its brevity because I want you to make sense of the key pieces that Paul is putting together. So having said that, Paul a Jesus hater, church killer, Ephesus, a city driven by finances, promiscuity, and sexual beauty, Paul writes to them. Let's read it together. Ephesians, it's about 75% into the Bible, maybe 80. This, This one doesn't have the maps. So it's a little bit thinner. Um, We'll pick up in chapter 3 and we'll read from verse 1. For this reason, there's a reason why Paul's saying for this reason. We'll get to that in a moment. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is... The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, And share us together in the promise of Christ Jesus. 
I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people or the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Wow, I told you it was full of treasure. I warned you. I warned you. You know what's fun? While I was reading that, I was just thinking, I don't know why, but my mind was racing that at least one of you will be like me. In other words, you'll be in your 50s one day and you'll be reading this passage and you will think back of all the things that God has done in the last 30 years. It's a remarkable story. Paul bookends this text with two remarkable statements. He says in the verse 1, he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And then he says in verse 13, he speaks of his suffering. I'll read it. Because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul bookends this remarkable passage with prisonership and suffering? Now, can I say to you, as we dive into the text, all of us need a far more substantive theology of suffering. There's a lightweight theology that floats around in many churches that basically the Bible is the American Constitution and that God is committed to our happiness. And unfortunately, it's just not true. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is committed to our happiness. In fact, it's never a conversation between the Father and the Son. It just doesn't feature. It's not in there. God is actually preoccupied with our joy, and that is where we find His sanctum, His peace, in the midst of the storm. The joy of the Lord is my strength. God is far more committed to letting us find the celebration of joy than it is a brief smile. Think of a child for a moment. Don't you love the way they can flip their moods in an instant? Tickling the one moment, weeping the next. That's happiness. Happiness is a fleeting, passing emotion, which is delightful, but never lasts, and certainly cannot be the foundation of life. So you and the missus were fighting last night, and you say, I don't know if I want to be married to you, because before I married you, I was happy. Now I'm not. Forgive me for saying so, sir. You are probably the most selfish brute I've ever met, because hopefully you didn't marry this gorgeous Jesus' daughter so that you could be happy. Surely even you aren't that selfish. You don't marry to be happy. You marry to give yourself away. You marry to serve. So Paul says this. He says, I am a prisoner. Now, there are two implications here. The first is actual and visible. I am in prison. I'm in a physical prison. A Roman prison was nothing to, 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 to just dismiss. It's not like the Swedish prisoners, prisons where you get TV you get conjugal visiting rights, you know, you get clean facilities, you get great food, great cafeterias. No, this is a Roman prison. That stinks. 
They don't feed you. Paul had to get people like Onesiphorus who would come and feed him and look after his needs. But he says, I am in prison for your sake. It's also a spiritual thing. Because when you and I surrender our lives to Christ, we become prisoners. We're held captive to our calling. Woe to me, I can't do anything else. The saddest person on the planet is not the unredeemed. It's the Jonah who runs from God's presence. That's the saddest person. Because they're just not in the sweet spot of where God wants them to live. They want to try to run away from his divine captivity and actually they find themselves enchained to their own passions. We have to develop. Thank you. That was when I, you know what happens? People say to me, why do you preach the way you do? But I see it in my mind. I'm just describing to you what I see. And I see people in chains. I see them held captive. The very thing they are pursuing is the very thing that's holding them captive. But there is a more magnificent, a more beautiful captivity. And that's the captivity of his calling. Where Paul says, I am a doulos. I am a slave of him. I'm held captive to do what I do. What a glorious privilege. I'm held captive to that woman. By God's great calling. He said, there's no better husband on this planet for her than moi. I mean, that's it. I'm held captive. Isn't it a glorious captivity? I'm held captive to my kids. It was so funny. Yesterday, my son played for Mariners Christian against Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in the final, the flag football eighth grade final. Oh, my Lord. If you ever want to see a bunch of Christians who forget they saved, come to a competitive game. So, so they think they score a touchdown. None as blind as those who won't see. You know what I'm saying? This kid dived. You're not allowed to dive at flag football to score a touchdown. So the ref blows it, yellow ribbon or whatever it is, his yellow submarine. He throws his submarine there. Well, whatever. And, and uh, you know, it's no touchdown. Well, their dads are freaking out. That wasn't a dive. I hear myself say, of course it was a dive. Do you want to come and mix it? I'm thinking, <laughs> buddy, you are a grandpa now. I remember you are 54. You are Christians. You should be saying praise the Lord somewhere. Somewhere you should say amen. I think it's after the hit and run. You know what I mean? It's like, do you want that? W- I know, I know. We are filthy sinners, aren't we all? Paul is a prisoner. And I want us to understand, dear friends, there is something of the joy and the privilege of the captivity God has anchored us into. It is not the chains of bondage. It is the ownership of a life story. Please don't run from God's intentionality for you. 30 years of marriage with Meryl next week. 22nd of November. 30 years of marriage. I have three kids. We are in captivity together. What a privilege. See, our theology of suffering empowers us to believe that as Christians, we will have times of privilege and times of pain. That's what I sat my kids down from when they were small. Meryl and I, from when they were young, we traveled. We left them. We ministered around the world. They were left. I never saw my daughter swim in a swim meet. And you know what? She's a pastor's wife, loves Jesus, I think, more than her dad does. Don't get that psychology into you that, oh, they're going to be butchered. You can't miss a practice. You can't miss a game. What will happen if they don't go to tennis lessons? Nothing. Nothing will happen to them. 
You stay in your grace space. The privilege that God has given you to be captive in. And watch and see what he does. Such a pressure to conform to worldly ways. Extra lessons. Extra this. So, you know, and all the while mom and dad are not. The greatest gift we can give our kids is our obedience to Jesus. I heard my mouth say this recently preaching somewhere. That I, my kids need to know I love Jesus more than I love them. And the place went quiet. How can you preach such heresy? If my kids don't know that I love Jesus more than I love them, how will they ever love Jesus? He's not worthy of being loved. Amen. Paul, a prisoner to the Gentiles. For this reason, Paul says. What reason? Well, chapter 1 is all about the individual believer, the great joy and privilege of God saving me. You know, you went through chapter 1. I'm sure they emphasized the great adoption piece, how God walked into a room full of children, and He said, I want you. And He gathered you, and He called you by name, and He adopted and put you into His family. What a privilege. Then chapter 2 is all about community. And how the church is a building where everyone fits in. A temple where everyone worships. Hey, listen. Can we crank up that worship just a little bit? I mean, I mean can we? He's not worth a mumble. He's not. He's not worth the hands in the pocket while I text thought. Let me look at the screen. Look around. Now, you and I know that on the TV screens right now, they're going to be people with tattoos on their chest, in, snow, in, in, in sleet and snow, t-shirts open, jolly cheeses on their heads. Tell me that's not weird. <laughs> Who walks around with a cheese on their head? Come on now. If you walked in here today and we all had cheeses on our heads, would you think that was weird or what? Come on now. And these people are doing what? In the snow, in the sleet, without clothes on, with tattoos, with war paint, with cheeses saying, Ah! And we've got the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the bright and morning star, the sovereign God who reigns supreme over everything. And we offer him a, thou art worthy, great Jehovah. Come on. Come on. He's adopted you. He's put you back on track. He's given you meaning, purpose, and destiny. He's reshaped you, resculpted you. He's brought joy back to your soul. He's given you purpose in life. And that's all we can muster? You're kidding, right? Amen. Chapter 2. A building we're all knitted in. A temple where we worship together. A family that we do life together. A household where we share responsibilities together. And Paul says, for this reason. Hang on, Paul, you're kidding me. Most churches, dear friends, stop there. All that they do is you as a believer and you in community. That's it. You, in a, you as a believer, how God wants to bless you, how God wants to love you, and, and it's true. And community, how we're going to love each other. That's the sum total package. Not Paul. Not Paul. This is a transitionary chapter in the whole book. And the transitionary chapter is he engages us with the Gentiles. In other words, he's putting us on a global story. Now the Gentiles for us as Caucasians predominantly or Westerners, 
Uh, we don't fully get that, but let's try and contextualize it for just a moment. How much did the Jews hate the Gentiles? They were unclean. They were treated as the lowest of animals, the donkey. They were spoken of with ill repute. A Jew would not shake a Gentile's hand. There would be no engagement, no business with a Gentile. They were despised. So it's a little bit like, Darren's just been in the Middle East, the Jews were the Palestinians. Enormous hate. They are bombing each other. People are dying while I speak. That level of hatred. Paul says, I am in prison for the people you despise, for the people you hate. It's a bit like the South in the 60s with the Caucasians and the African Americans. The deep hatred, the resentment. I was thinking about it the other day. I'm not sure why. Of how they would just, on a whim, walk past a young African American kid and string him up. Hang him. Because he looked, supposedly, at one of the women. The hatred, the resentment, the pain. That's what Paul says, I'm in prison for the people you hate and the people you despise. For some Americans, it's the Americans and the Muslims. It's like Paul saying, I'm in prison for the Muslims. Or, socially, for some people, it's the heterosexual, homosexual issue. And so Paul has just changed the game. He's just moved into another gear. He's saying, my dear precious believers, it's not just chapter 1 about you and Jesus. It's not just chapter 2 about you and community. The game has just changed. It's about us on global assignment together. Does that make sense? He speaks about the manifest, manifold wisdom of, of God. He says, this grace was given me. To preach, let me just make sure I'm using one of your Bibles here, because my translation's different. He says, uh, la, 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 la. the grace was given me, verse 8, to preach the Gentiles, the people you despise and hate, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent is that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Come on, Chris, you've got to get going, buddy. You've got lunch to get to. Incredible truths here. He's changing the game. He's putting us in a global story. He's in prison for the people we hate. And then he says this. It's for the manifold wisdom of God to be seen. Manifold is a unique Greek word. It's the only word, it's only used once, and it's here. And it speaks about the diverse colors or the width of wisdom that God brings through the church. What does that mean, Chris? It sounds, it sounds too clever for me. Well, I'm not sure I fully understand. Let me try. When we look at church history, it is remarkable, dear friends, how much this gospel has transformed society. Just think back for a moment, the whole slave issue of the 1800s. How it was Christians who, because of their fundamental love for God and the realization that people have dignity, fought a whole imperialistic nation. Why? Well, it was easy. England had an economy based on slaves and they dominated the world. It's a global story. And so a few people like William Wilberforce 
took on the might of the largest economic power in the world at that time and said, slaves are not possessions. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every Muslim is fearfully and wonderfully made. Every person you despise or hate is fearfully and wonderfully made by the king of kings, the author of life, the creator of the universe. And because of that, said Wilberforce, we will fight until every last slave is released. And they brought about the decline of an empire, but the freedom of mankind. The bridal burnings in India. When a husband died, it was culturally obligatory for the wife to be put on the funeral uh, stack with her man, and she would be burnt with him so that they could go into the afterlife together because of the many reincarnations. And the Christians watched this and fought it and changed and transformed an historical, traditional act based on a theology and brought about the freedom of woman. The little feet, the the, the Asian feet that were broken so that the woman would appear more feminine and would appear more appealing to men. Christians came with this glorious gospel, the manifold wisdom of God, the many-colored wisdom of God, and transformed the way women were treated. Please don't tell me and point out to me the weaknesses of individual Christians and forget the wonder of splendorous moments of freedom and liberty that Christians have brought into a world the manifold wisdom of God. I can go on, I can go on. My second daughter is a worship, is a songwriter, musician. And she was asked to perform at Hurley at their headquarters. I didn't know what the event was, but I went to hear my daughter. The event was for a group called Remnant. Here's the basic story. A couple of years ago, two young 20-somethings Orange County girls went to the Sudan. What they saw horrified them. Africa is a tragic continent. It is a continent that has an inability to repair and heal herself, but is the author of perpetual conflict and chaos. I know I lived there. I fought there. What they saw was soldiers from this one region went across to another region, please don't think the American military with all the benefits. Think soldiers walking with guns slung over their shoulders, on foot, sometimes a donkey, sometimes a taxi or something else that they could steal. So when they got to the battlefront, there was no R&R. There was no going home. There was no conjugal rights. There was no meet your wife in Paris for a week at the American government's expense specific example of friends of ours. They went there for years at a time. So these soldiers took wives. When the conflict subsided, these soldiers would come back to their village with their new wife, with kids. When they got back to this place, to the village, the wife, the original wife, obviously viewed incredible displeasure at him getting a wife so she was ostracized. The new wife was ostracized. About one and a half thousand of them in this one particular area. And they could do nothing. They had nothing, dear friends. They had the clothes on their back. They had no furniture. They had no income. They could not feed their kids. And they turned to the only thing that would generate money, which was prostitution. Normal woman like you. 
who had nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. Their dignity robbed, their femininity destroyed, their body becoming a vessel of survival. And these two 20-something-year-old Orange County girls saw this and believed in the manifold wisdom of God that God can bring life to these people. I watched the primary voice is a 22-year-old Egyptian young girl. Her parents fled from Egypt to give their daughter, not Christians, the parents, to give their daughter a new life in America and could not understand why she would want to go back to Africa, the very continent they escaped from. I watched as they arrived because I knew the story by then of how nervous they were watching everything. Was, and there was a room full of young people predominantly. And as the evening progressed, her parents moved from nervous, reluctance, disengagement into front, in the front row applauding and kind of screaming shouts of applause for their daughter. Why? Because these young girls who believe in the power of the gospel, who believe in the manifold wisdom of God to be revealed, They've bought a compound, 22-year-old girls. They've rescued, I don't know how many of these women already. They're teaching them a skill. They're empowering them to be self-economically uh, sufficient. And this was a fundraiser to pay for one more month's rent, one more month's salary, one more month. That's what Paul's talking about. This is a complicated passage, but when we break it down, he is basically saying, please, believer, don't make church about you or about you and your community. Engage in the manifold wisdom of God. Let the earth know. Let the world know in this great God that we serve and the color and width and diversity of the wisdom that he brings because of the gospel. What is so majestic about this gospel, dear friends? Paul speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ unfathomable. In other words, you can't get to the bottom of it. Why am I still so passionate at the age of 54? Surely after 30 years of ministry, I should be a little bit grumpy, a little bit cynical. I fought too many Christian fights. I've been stabbed too many times in the back by grumpy Christians who've lied about me. Surely I should just be mellow now, ride out my years, hang out with my grandkids. Surely I can't. I can't even try and preach Orange County style. I've got to remain a passionate African. Why? Because this gospel is extraordinary. Why would a man go to prison for his enemies? Why would he go and sit in prison and speak with joy? He said, don't be grumpy about my suffering. It's your glory. It's your glory that I'm in prison. I'm in prison for your sake. What empowers a person to be so passionate about Jesus and not kind of just cool where you just want to be a little bit of a better person and you just want to kick the dog less and smile at your wife more and hug the kids one more time and sit on occasion and do their homework. Is that Christianity? Is that why Jesus went to the cross? You're obviously kidding me. When the seed of the gospel buries itself into your heart, you and I become raging, radical, rabid people. Because the unfathomable riches of Christ. Number one, it's scandalous grace. Grace is a scandal. Why would God give mercy to people who don't deserve it? It's scandalous to empower us to salvation. 
to go and fetch us when we're foraging in our own sin and iniquity. When we're scampering around the world trying to get everything to exist for my benefit. And then God dares reach out with blood-stained hands and pluck me out of the mire of my own stupidity. It is absolutely scandalous. And Paul says, I'm the least of all the saints, all the sinners. Why? Because he did what none of us did. He killed Christians. This gospel is not about deserving. I know what it feels like sometimes. Oh, Chris, I can't go to gathering. I can't go to church until I improve myself and then I can go. Please, sir, don't heed such foolishness. It's because we can't. It's because we don't. That he comes with scandalous affection and graces us out of our sinfulness. Secondly, it's the lavishness of his love. The unsearchable riches. I had to discipline my boy this summer. He's 13. He's in the youth. Great kid. But, but he crossed the line. And I knew that he felt incredibly disappointed. That he disappointed God, disappointed his mom and dad, and disappointed himself. And uh, that evening, I went, that afterwards, I went to pray with him. And I thought, this is a great gospel moment. And I said, Bones, it's kind of one of my nicknames for him. I said, Bones, he likes it. He feels like. (laughs) I said, Bones, do you know that Jesus will never love you any more or any less than he loves you right now? And I could see his eyes misted over in unbelief. Dad, you're really kidding me, aren't you? He's beating himself up because he blew it. He's devastated by his own breach of family trust. And I I looked at him. I said, Bones, look at me. Look into my eyes, boy. God will never love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. Why do so few of you in this room believe that? Okay, so you slept with your girlfriend last night. I'm so sorry. It was a really foolish thing to do, treating his daughter like that. She's not a cloth to be used at your wish or will. She's not an object for your passions and your lusty behavior and your inability to discipline yourself. She's someone's daughter. I was speaking at a school, a boys' school, about 800 boys. And I was speaking to them on the issue of sex and marriage. And I knew I couldn't come with the Bible because they don't believe the Bible. So my opening line was, so if you come home one day and you see your best friend in bed with your mother, you'd be really happy. Well, I had their attention. Because not one of them would have said, yeah, my mate scored. Not one of them. Why? Because somehow inside, when we finished fighting our moral cause, we know that that woman has been authored and made in the image of God with beauty and femininity and purity. But even if you did, God will never love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. I know it's scandalous. Thirdly, It's not just scandalous grace or lavish love. It's final forgiveness. That's the mystery of this gospel that people need to hear. 
They tell me in New Zealand they have the highest incidence of teenage suicide anywhere in the world. Why? It's a little island. People seem to be happy. Lots of sheep. They surf, they play rugby. Why? Because the sanity and safety of an island nation that should be happy is not enough to keep kids off drunks, drugs and suicide. Why? Because they need to understand a gospel where forgiveness is final. You know, when you've sinned, friends, and I am trying to land it, thank you for being so gracious, but these are such important pieces. When you've blown it, and we all are, no matter how you try and negotiate your morality, you know inside when you've blown it. The journey begins with a confession. David said after he had slept with another man's wife, he said, it is against you, O Lord, that I've sinned. And then comes the sweet and wondrous forgiveness. And that's yours today. Today, God can forgive you. But that's not finished yet. Because then it goes on, and he cleanses me from all my unrighteousness. He gets out the divine bleach, and he cleanses me. And that is remarkable. That even the stain of my sin can be removed. But it's not finished yet. Because for me, the climax of this glorious, mysterious gospel of Christ is this. He remembers my sin no more. He remembers my sin no more. So it's not just confession, forgiveness, cleansing. It is the very removal of the memory of sin. Now, that's impossible for you and me to live with. Because as parents, our parents often say, Oh, you rubbish. You always, you always get a C. You always get into trouble. And so our parents don't speak a gospel of mystery of Christ into us. They pummel us with the voice of the enemy. You always, you are useless. You will do this again. The parent who parents with the gospel says this. You've blown it, and I said it to my son. And there are consequences, and I said it to my son. And you will be punished, and there are consequences. But know this, boy. Dad will never, ever bring that up again. It's done. Because God chooses to remember my sin no more. And so when you and I and the multitudes out there, what we need to hear is the finality of that forgiveness. Listen, the enemy comes back to me just like he does with you. Takes me back to when I was 14. Remember when you? When I was 19. Remember when you? And it says the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And I say, Satan, I want you to listen to me. What you say is absolutely true. I did do that. I did do that. I did do that. But here's the deal, buddy. To principalities and powers in the heavenly places, you are the father of lies. You keep bringing that back to my attention. But God remembers my sin no more. Father, remember when I was 14 because the enemy has just done this to me? And he says, I remember your sin no more. God, remember when I was 19? I remember your sin no more. Now, there is a planet of 6 billion people 
starting in the shadowlands of this inner city, all the way through the darkest places of India, China, Africa, and London, that need to hear that God remembers our sin no more. That's why I preach this passionately. That's why I never tire at the opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ that is now available on a global stage. And that's true for you, and it's true for me. Let's pray together. I think there are a few things. Just keep your heads down, quiet, nice privacy. I think there are a few things that God is doing here this morning. And I'm not limiting it to this, but prophetically I feel like, number one, I really do feel like some of you, one or two or three, I don't know, God wants to put in the beginning stages of a Jesus journey. I hope there was enough seed of the gospel to capture your heart this morning. So to me, Chris, I have more questions than answers. I know. I know. But begin the journey with him. That's what happened to me as an 18-year-old. Secondly, this was not a young church. This church had been around for a few years when Paul the father writes to his family, if you wish. And he repeats himself over and over again. The mystery of this grace. The mystery of this gospel. Stewards of the grace. He says it over and over. Why? Because the enemy wants to hold us captive to yesterday's activities, but God wants to set us free. I really feel like God wants to set some of you free. The enemy's been beating you into a shell where you feel like you can't break out. Even at night, you're lying there awake. In the last five, six nights, you've been lying there awake. Say, oh God, I'm, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And you're carrying the stain that God wants to bleach. And this morning, there's the opportunity. And then lastly, I feel like God is stirring some of you back to a global platform. Life circumstances haven't been easy in the last while and your God's story has shrunk more and more and more to paying the next bill, solving the next crisis, praying the next prayer. And I feel like God wants to lift your head this morning, put you back where ordinary people do extraordinary things. Paul said, I do all of this in the power of God. That's the only way we can. So if any of that is true of you, just put your hands up on the inside. Don't, not outside, just inside. Say, God, that's me. That's me. I want to respond to you where I'm seated right now. That's me.